things started feeling very repetitious. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's something you feel. Sometimes I wonder if that's something you feel when you're, say, in your 90s and you've you've seen it all, you've done it all. <laughs> it just felt like, oh, the thrill is gone. You were prematurely in your 90s. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, that feeling of, well, I've done all this. Yeah. You know, I've been in this shop. I've been to this museum. It's it's not a thrill to go to the Met anymore, or to go to MoMA. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just delighted to welcome Mike Trupiano to the My Fourth Act podcast. Mike is a comic actor from the United States who now resides in Berlin, Germany. He is a celebrated storyteller, writer, storytelling teacher, a voiceover artist, and the creator and host of the just-launched podcast Secret Sun, which is an adoptee podcast about searching, identity, and secrets. Welcome, Mike. Ayahim. As I read the last words, searching identity and secrets. Now, I have not been adopted, but I could immediately think about how relevant those three words are to my own journey in life. And I think that's part of the gift of what you're doing with your podcast. I also want to just be transparent and say that you and I know each other outside of this podcast. I think of you as a friend, and it's sort of a double gift for me to to have this conversation. And I'm going to ask some questions to which, even though you're a friend, I seriously don't have the answer to. Like my first one, when you were uh, a little boy or teenager growing up, Mike, and you know we're all supposed to think about what we want to be as grown-ups. What did you think you wanted to be as a grown-up? This is a big reason I'm doing this podcast is because my I can't say I had those thoughts I had vague ideas of and I've only recalled this because some grade school friends I've reconnected with that I've reconnected with have reminded me of this that I talked about broadcasting school there was something called the Connecticut School of Broadcasting which advertised Mm -hmm. constantly it was the only broadcasting school I'd ever heard of And I talked about that, but I was always obsessed with searching for this family that was out there. And this roared into my consciousness and then I would get busy with life and and then it would come back. But I I felt my destiny was not in my hometown. I really had no strong roots there. And I felt like life was elsewhere. So what did I want? What did I want to be? I wanted to just be. (laughs) I just wanted to be elsewhere. Well, I have to chuckle because the societal pressure and the parental pressure to have an answer to that 
is enormous, right? People ask us, like, what do you want to study in school? And, and we're constantly bombarded with other people's need for us to have a story about how we want to grow up. I love that you mentioned broadcasting school because I know you've heard this before. You have a broadcaster's voice, which is deep and sonorous. So it makes sense to me that people would say that. And you ended up in New York and people go to New York, if I'm being simplistic too, because they have dreams and aspirations. It's a, it's not always an easy city to live in, but people go there to fulfill their dreams and make stuff happen. When you moved to New York, what are some things that you wanted to make happen for Mike Truppiano? When I was young, there was, and there still is, amazingly, Saturday Night Live. But when uh -huh. I was a kid, it had just started. And I was so mesmerized by the intro of yeah. these 20, 30 seconds of city street life. And I was also mesmerized by, by films of the time, Serpico or, I don't know, Dog Day Afternoon, films about gritty New York. And I just wanted to be somewhere gritty. Yeah. And I thought, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to thrive where I am. I want to go. That place looks, if it's really like that, I assumed it was like that. Yeah. And it was. When I got there, it was still like that. And I... I just wanted these experiences. I just wanted to be on the Lower East Side. Be open to the, be, have this sort of culture available to me. I also did not want to drive. I'm mm -hmm. from car culture. Yeah. Where taking a cab is a laughable idea and a bus is shameful. And I just thought, I just, I'm, I just want a totally new start. And I, I think being an adopted kid and having your roots, it made pulling up stakes a lot easier. Yeah. And I did not have a strong connection with my adoptive family. So I thought, <clears throat> you know, freedom is another word for nothing left to lose. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's see what's out there. And I had this idea, which a lot of adoptees have, of tabula rasa. I'm just going to completely remake myself from top to bottom. And I've discovered I could remake a lot of myself. I do have a core. And this core is, it's not a bad core, but it's just a, it's a physicality. It's a, you know, it's my genes. Certain things, the way I think, the way I see the world, the way I am. You, I can, you can only change so much. But I, one thing I wanted to do in New York was to do primal therapy, which in my, I don't know, in my pre-internet thinking, I thought, well, this is probably only New York or, or LA. I don't want to drive, so let's go to New York. And I had this idea of somehow doing comedy. You touched on so many wonderful points, but because I was a denizen of the East Village and the Lower East Side, because I was drawn to what I would call the gritty glamour, not the high-end glossy glamour, but the glamour of the East Village, of creative thinking, of artists. It was inexpensive to live there back in the days. So you invoked all of that for me. And you had these wonderful references of 1970s <laughs> Al Pacino movies. It has a sexy glamour for people. 
if you had to think about like a moment or two that epitomized what you absolutely loved about being New York, a moment that you go, wow, I can't believe I'm here. What, what moments come to mind? Well, I can think of three people who made three performers that I had always wanted to see. And they were either workshopping stuff, workshopping new shows or having actual shows. Yeah. And again, coming from car culture, just to be able to walk <laughs> 10 blocks away yeah. and to see Karen Finley, to see Eric Bogosian sitting yeah. five street, not five streets, five seats away from him. Spalding Gray. If I could lump all of that together, I would think, wow, look at this. You know, like from... What's that Bob Fosse musical, if they could see me now, like in retrospect, it's like, wow, I wanted to be in the flow. There seemed to be in New York a constant flow. And my names are escaping me. The writer, the female writer from California, all these names are escaping me. You know, she wrote about how New York has this endless sense of possibility. And I just, I felt that and I wanted that. And uh, I did feel that, and I, I do feel that in New York, about New York, and just life has taken me elsewhere right now. For our listeners who may not know Karen Finley and, and Eric Bogosian and Spalding Gray, those, were, those are, I would say, icons of non-traditional storytelling who emerged from a more bohemian counterculture, and some of them became very successful and mainstream and you're you're talking about this this wonderful moment where you could just go to PS one twenty two or wherever they were in, in the East Village and and see these people who are now really famous. The kitchen was a couple of streets away from kitchen. where I lived, for example, yes. Laurie Anderson. Yeah. Now, New York is also a tough place, or can be, because. There are lots of people just like us who are striving, who want to be successful, who want to be noticed. It can be expensive to live in New York. You have to support yourself. If you think of a moment where you went, why the hell am I living here? We've just talked about the glamour, but uh, have you ever had moments like that? And, and what comes to mind there? Well, so many of my stories in life that I tell on stage, well, they're 99% comedic, but the actual stories they're based on are borderline tragic. Mm -hmm. So, but tragedy plus time, you know, to support myself, I, I couldn't temp anymore. People didn't really want me anyway. And I was always broke. And I, I had always wanted, I loved painting. I subsequently found out later my father was a, a tile layer. He was an immigrant from Sicily. Mm -hmm. So I seemed to have this naturally in me. And so I started putting up flyers that I could do home repair. Amazingly, I got calls right away. A few years into it, a ceiling, we were working on a, place and I, I had a couple guys working for me and one came in the other room where I was and he said I think you need to look at this 
and <laughs> a hole was forming on the ceiling. Ouch. And it, it formed and it formed and it got bigger and bigger and sand kept pouring out of it. Oh. And I thought, oh my God, what is going to lead to, what is this going to lead to? Superintendent was called building manager. Turns out it was not our fault. But in that moment, I was thinking, my God, what, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing here? Is this what, is this what it's meant to be? Yeah. And I have a hunch that was more than one moment like that. <laughs> so we could probably spend the whole podcast dissecting those stories. As you were talking, you made, you made a couple of references. And I mentioned in the introduction that you were adopted. So two questions immediately come to my mind. At what point were you told that you had been adopted? And at what point did it seem really pressing for you to find out who your birth parents were and possibly contact them? Again, along this theme of, you know, freedom's just another word. I, my there was a lot of tension in my adoptive family and we did not connect. So the idea of searching, I had minimal psychological resistance to that. You know, there's the normal guilt with it that comes with it of, Oh, you know, they, we were rescued. My adoptive sister and I, not blood sister, but it was not that difficult. I really wanted to know. And it was almost debilitating. And it, it built through my childhood, my high school years. It built through my high school years. It grew. And then finally, about age 18, I approached them and I said, you know, I really would like to search. They didn't take it well. I put that on the back burner. Chose their feelings over mine, put out, put that on the back burner for 10 years until I did search again. And, th and then I did have immediate success. We knew at a young age, we were adopted. I would say age, very young, the age you, of consciousness for something like that. Part of what intrigues me about your life story, you spend several decades living in what to many people is a very glamorous city, New York. And then, gosh, you met, you met a German woman in New York, a composer of film music, a musician. You married her name. I can mention Cassis Bergerstout. She's an amazing human being and an amazing artist. And then you ended up moving to Berlin, Germany. And my hunch is that would not have happened without having a German spouse. But when that idea came up, and I want to Berlin is, symbolizes so many things to people. It's a seductive city. It's, a, it's another city of possibilities, which is how you describe New York. But when that possibility first came up, what was your initial reaction to, hey, Berlin? I think I may have been pushing it more than my wife. I had had a lifelong obsession with this country and as soon as I found my birth mother, that greatly lessened. So I think I had some subconscious pull to hear because I, upon finding my birth mother, I found out that we had 
I think her grandparents were born here or maybe great grandparents, but, and both of them were from here. So I felt like a kind of a homing pigeon all my life. I couldn't, could not articulate it, but what language did I study in high school? German. So I always felt this pull to here and coincidentally met someone who I thought when I met her was either Czech or Russian. Turns out she's German, although she does have Czech heritage. And then again, like New York, I, I at some point I felt like the time in New York is over. Yeah. Whatever I needed to do here is done. May I stop you for a moment because that statement I think is so powerful and we all have our own version of knowing then we're done with something, but also for our listeners, this is the fourth act podcast, you know, when we are done, it's a signal to maybe shift into another act. But could you describe this? Like, how did you know that you were done? I'm curious how you knew that, that it was okay to move on. I don't know. I would say things started feeling very repetitious. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's something you feel. Sometimes I wonder if that's something you feel when you're, say, in your 90s and you've you've seen it all, you've done it all. <laughs> it just felt like, oh, the thrill is gone. You were prematurely in your 90s. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, that feeling of, well, I've done all this. Yeah. You know, I've been in this shop. I've been to this museum. It's It's not a thrill to go to the Met anymore or to go to MoMA not besmirching anything just okay whatever this was i've done the thrill of walking along a super crowded street bumping into people just vibing off that yeah no way gone i don't even want to think about the possibility of that i obviously so clearly identify i knew when i was done with new york and ended up in a different orbit in south florida as a German who sometimes has mixed feelings about Germany and chooses not to live there. And I'm thinking about the fact that you moved to Berlin and you studied German in high school, but you were by no means a fluent German speaker. So describe to us what it was like to suddenly be in Berlin. You live in a, again, I've used the term before, sexy part of Berlin on the edge of Prenzlauer Berg, which is a fantastic neighborhood. But what was it like to settle into, to actually settle into a different culture, learn the language? There are cultural differences. Give us a glimpse of what that was like for you. Well, it was exciting. It was the challenge I wanted Uh and needed at the time. And in retrospect, so that was 11 years ago. Yeah. I think, my God, that was hard. <laughs> that was really hard because I was, well, not because of, but also because I was here. My wife did not come full time for a couple of years. So I had to navigate a lot of this on my own, going to the government offices, entreating friends to go with me to help translate the, the really complicated things. I reveled in it. And I think just like moving to New York the first time, that enthusiasm helped me overcome the really hard parts. 
at times catching people kind of looking at me askance and you realize you've made some sort of really, I guess I made some cultural faux pas. I had no idea. Was I, what, what it was? I don't know. Was I too loud? Was I too honest? (laughs) Was I too unfiltered? I don't know. People often think I'm from Brooklyn. You mean you were the target of German judgment? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> well, I don't want to stereotype, but I think... But, but I, I'm, I'm German, I may, so... <laughs> I think so. The the constant assessing. But people often, people I meet here, Americans, often assume I'm from Brooklyn. Yeah. So I think I'm... I don't know if I have the, the Midwestern niceness. I think I could, maybe I can be a little unfiltered. If I've inherited anything from my adopted mother, it's that. Yeah. Just kind of film noir, straight talking. What strikes me about the comment you just made is it's near impossible to not have judgments or preconceptions about things. Like I was joking about Germans, but you have an Italian last name, Mike Trippiano, right? And you have a certain, I mean, it's the nicest way, maybe a more ethnic look to you and but whatever, when people say to you, oh, he must be from Brooklyn, you know they have all sorts of narratives about what that means that have nothing to do with Mike Trupiano, right? But the narratives around what a guy from Brooklyn might be like, which is so interesting. It is interesting, but it's also, I hate to keep bringing this up, but it is my life and it has not completely, but in a great way determined my life being an adopted kid you are a bit of an outsider. You are the observer. And so I have to be careful. It can be very comfortable to be the outsider. Well, I, you, you know that I, at the age of 34, moved to, to a small island Caribbean, you know, Tobago for a year and became a windsurfer. And what I learned inside of me afterwards, that I was not consciously recreating the experience of being a total outsider. Because I'd grown up that way in in the end, I couldn't wait to get the heck out of Tobago because I realized I didn't need to recreate that experience anymore. It was my exorcism of that. And you just described the entry in Berlin totally as a recreation of I fit, but I also don't fit, right? The other thing, I know I want to get to your podcast, but one more thing that I find so intriguing again, in the spirit of your story, but all of us is my senses, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when you got to Berlin, it was a better playground for your professional gifts. You know, you've done some very high-profile commercials. You have a commercial agent. You've done lots of storytelling events on stage in English where you are, uh, people appreciate you, appreciate what you're doing. So you ended up in this, in some ways, foreign city, but the artist and creator in you has been able to express himself in a larger way. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, I have this Twitter persona called the Heartland Refugee. Uh huh. And that <laughs> is useful. And that's I, I notice. Of- I notice a theme here. <laughs> And that is kind of my stage persona. And yeah, when I came here, I started doing storytelling shows and very kind of moth-like. And they vote for the best, not the best, the favorite storyteller. And I would often be voted the favorite. 
And so I subsequently started teaching storytelling. I was often told I had a really good commercial look in New York, and I did book commercials and some voice stuff in New York, but I've definitely done more here. So I got a commercial agent here, sent them some photos. They said, sure, come on in. First audition I did, I booked it. And this a Swiss department store or something, standing in a lake, I, I realized in retrospect they there was a hole in the boots in the freezing lake in late November. And I think the crew was high and there was no security there in case we were standing in the middle of a lake on a platform. We could have, in retrospect, I think, wow, you know, it happens a lot, actors getting yeah. injured on set. And this is a decent commercial, but this was not even at that high level. So they were, I don't know what their plan was. Anyway, survived it. No frostbite. Let's speak for myself. When I'm in the moment, I'm caught up in what's the next thing? What's the next thing? When I, when I look back, I was like, wow, I was in an elevator with Vladimir Klitschko. <laughs> And you I want to reference her. that. That was that's one of the first commercials you shot. Vladimir Klitschko yeah. is a rock star in Europe more than the United States. And it was you and Vladimir Klitschko. I went, holy friggin' cow. How cool is that? Yeah. Yeah. A big guy alone in an elevator. A little, little intimidating. But nice. Nice guy. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act mastermind groups where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. And also, I've done quite a few, the, the English language narration for German documentaries. And I know that one thing that happened, and I want to tie it to location, because what we're talking about is by moving to a foreign city, some things happened that would not have happened in New York. So at some point last year, you got a phone call to support a well-known international entertainer on a project in in another big European city that came out of nowhere and that probably wouldn't have happened if you'd been in New York. Would you care to briefly talk about what that experience was like for you? Well, to sum it up, surreal. A friend called me from the States. Can you, he was working with this entertainer. Can you go to this city in Europe, stay with this guy for a couple of weeks? At first, I thought, whoa, I don't know how to really be a coach like this. I mean, I actually had done it before. I had forgotten at the moment I had traveled and, with. And this our, was to be what's often called a sober coach, right? To be a sober coach and to be with them and to keep them on the straight and narrow in various addictions. Be it alcohol, be it straying in their relationship. Just to be there as the coach. And I, I had forgotten when my friend called me that, oh, yeah, I actually have done this before. Yeah. This is indicative of how I sort of forget what, I, what I've done. So I went to this European city. They flew me there. And 
before that, I had done a WhatsApp chat with this guy, and I thought, oh, yeah, I know this guy. I Not that well. I didn't realize how big he was until I actually started working with him. So I kind of went into it a little oblivious, of, and it was good. I was a little blind how big he was because I was like, yeah, I'll do this, yeah. And he said, if it's all right, I'll put you up at my hotel. Because I had been panicked about, oh, i got to find a hotel. Put me up in his Four Seasons Hotel. I didn't know what a Four Seasons was. I'll be honest. I kind of knew. Now I know. And I want to go back. And for two weeks, I'd go with him to his work. Or we'd meet in his apartment, in his room, down the hall from me. And we would just talk about sobriety how one comes back to the moment. We'd read some 12-step literature. He he likes Jung a lot, which I who I also like. There's a Jung Institute here, which I'm investigating getting some sort of diploma or certificate from. The idea of integrating the shadow. And this happened. And this sometimes I I think it's a dream, but then I, I checked my bank account from that time and I say, oh yeah, this actually happened. <laughs> a listener might go like, how does a friend just call you up to do that? Maybe what I would like to add, your, your friend is a psychologist in California and had worked with this entertainer and thought that you being in Europe and having the right sensibility to be a sober companion might be the right person. I had heard from years from my friend that because I would often give him feedback on his life and he would say, why are you not a therapist? You should be a therapist or at least a coach. And then I started thinking about that. And I had coincidentally also been thinking a lot about this particular European city, which I'd never been to. And then suddenly this kind of coalesced and dropped in my lap and it was enjoyable, enjoyable being a coach and the guy's, Seemed very grateful, and apparently he's still on the straight and narrow. Sometimes it's, you roll the dice, you know, I just happen to be here, and yeah. sometimes things fall into place. Yeah. Uh, but I think you do have to take the action first, you know. I didn't just wake up here, I put myself here, you know, different What I would like to add, however, and if we use this as a metaphor for all of us, when you got the call to support this famous person you had the chance to say yes or the chance to say no you know and i think life often is about do we say yes or do we say no and especially when we're stepping to something really unknown as you did and you said yes which i think is freaking awesome thank you there were doubts but i know but i heard a lot of well of course you're doing this from other people and you're going to do this and you're going to be good at this. And my friend, the therapist said, you're going to be great at this. And I thought, you're right. Let's do it. What I love about the story is I, I put it in my mind is about being open to the surprises in life, you know, and in this case, the surprises that have happened for you by, by living in Berlin in a different city and, uh, and life suddenly starting to look different. I want to complete our conversation by really talking about Secret Sun and 
secrets on, I believe, wouldn't have happened if you had not actually made contact with your birth family or with some of your birth family and and that journey and your immersion in the adoptee journey and the adoptee world. So first thing I just curious as heck about when you initially met some of your birth family in person, what sort of feelings or emotions came up? I was 28 when I first met my mother and <laughs> I found her through a detective, a female detective who I just loved. And she was more of a mother than anyone I knew. And when I found my birth mother, she was, the detective was 56 or so. She unfortunately died a few years ago and that was that was that was difficult, but she was reckless and like a film noir character. And I even wrote a story for the radio about her. And she she carried a gun and chain smoker. And we drove down to where my mother lived. And unbelievably, I walked up to the door. And I've heard it, in retrospect other adoptees doing this, acting like delivery people. I acted mm -hmm. like I was delivering a Christmas card. It was right before Christmas, 95. And she came to the door and couldn't stop staring at me. And apparently I looked exactly like my father wow. did at that age. I was about the age of when they knew each other. Amazingly, I had no camera. I did not take photos. <laughs> yeah. I was like so much back then. I was just, let's do it. And then not much planning. But to see her was incredible. I knew, and I knew it was her. And then, you know, the hubris of youth, as I call it. We talked on the phone a few times after that. She was in St. Louis. I was in New York. I just lost contact with her. And I thought, well, I met her and I had other people telling me, well, what do you want? You know, De I'd say about two decades later, I realized it was important to reconnect with her if possible. Thankfully, she was still alive. The detective was still alive, tracked her down again. She had moved. And then we had a longer time together. I'd say we had, I went to my hometown for a couple of weeks. My wife and I spent time with my mother. We went out to eat. We helped to deal with. We helped her deal with her finances, decluttering, cutting up credit cards, many, many, many helpful things, some of which she resisted. Unbelievably powerful to finally see someone I look like and to learn family history. So that was a detective found my mother. Unfortunately, my, my mother died last year. 2018 spring of 2018 through a dna website i connected with a hab a halb i'm speaking german a half sibling a half sister on a dna website nothing and not expecting anything i went into it the search i had about given up i had found someone years earlier who i thought was my father i contacted his children 
didn't hear back from them, but I was certain this was the guy. It was not. I was about to give up. I thought, let me give, let me give DNA one more shot. And just coincidentally, my half-sister, who knows all of her relatives, very tight-knit community, to appease her kids, said, all right, I'll go on the DNA website. And she got a surprise. There I was. And I went into the search thinking, I just want to know his name. Can I just know his name? Instead of waking up every day wondering what his name is, wondering what he looks like, a name, some photos, and some family history. That's all I wanted. And then I got a half-sister and a half-brother, who I guess now we call each other brother and sister, and an uncle, and some cousins who I've not met yet. Apparently, I'm a twin for my dad, more so than my brother, mm-hmm. who everyone had always thought, oh, my God, you look so much like dad. And my half-sister has said that if you were not a twin for dad, I don't know if I would have believed you, you know, but you are dad. And I've met them all several times. I initially met my sister in Europe because she was working over here. I met her in front of the Vatican. And we just kind of stared at each other for maybe the first hour. We went out to eat in Rome. Uh, She started crying at some point. I may have too. She asked me how Catholic I was, and I thought, oh boy, I hope that's not a deal breaker. (laughs) (laughs) So I massaged that answer. Well, I pursue many spiritualities. What comes to my mind as a non-adopted person is... um, Immediately, when when you find a family later in life that you didn't know you had, and I think of you and the life you've created for yourself in New York and in Berlin, you're an artist through and through. It's in some ways a non-traditional life. So I immediately went, this new family, do they get who you are? My first question. The second question was, does it matter that they get who you are? Yeah, how do you know if somebody gets you? You know, especially when you're in a different continent. But I know what you mean. But there, there have been some questions and some comments through the years of like, oh, is that how you see us? Or is that how you see me? Is like, what time do you guys get up? What time do you guys go to bed? And I, I don't know. We're so outside the paradigm, yeah. their particular paradigm, and not judging the paradigm. It's a very popular paradigm. You know, my wife and I will work till three in the morning on a project and, you know, get up at eight or get up at 10 or, you know, maybe don't go to bed, you know, whatever the thing is, yeah. just to get it done. I always have attention attention where I, I crave this kind of order and respectability and yet it's it's always seemed out of my grasp and do i even want it anymore do i need it yeah. i don't know is it important if they understand us yeah, i think less and less yeah yeah 
based on what you know about yourself and what you know about life right now and your journey, you know, through New York and Berlin, what sort of wisdom would you like to share with, with younger Mike, not to change his journey in life, but things that you think might be helpful to him? I'm doing the artist way again. I do it about every, I had been doing it once a year and now I'm just uh-huh. doing it. And when it ends, I started again with a friend of mine in the States. We do it by Zoom. And there's, Julia Cameron has this expression in there, a leap and the net will appear. Mm. And that is really how I, I try to live now. And, and I think I do it with more faith now. But I think when I was younger, I took leaps, but I didn't expect much. I was always surprised when things happened. And so there was a lot of internal angst. Should I do this? Should I not? So I would say, just trust that net is going to appear. Because when I look back, I see, oh my God, look at all these angels that showed up. (laughs) It's really quite shocking. The net will appear is a beautiful way to complete our conversation. I am so grateful to you for First of all, for knowing you, for the person that you are, and and the wonderful, wonderful podcast that you just launched. I'm sure our listeners may be curious about where they can find the podcast and learn more about you. So where where would you like to direct them, Mike? Well, I would start with the podcast Secret Sun Pod, P-O-D dot com. And I also have my regular performance website. Just my name, MikeTrupiano.com. Wonderful. Thank you for the conversation and to be continued. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. It will be. Thanks a lot. Bye. Like what you heard? Please go to MyFourthAct.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.